Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I'm glad that you're here. Obviously, I'm still hanging on, keeping busy. (laughs) I hope that your new year is going well now that we're nearly a week in. But as you already know, I have no idea how mine is going because it's still December when I am. (laughs) Um, But whenever and wherever you are, I hope that at the very least things are looking up. Uh, One of my friends posted about watching some of her colleagues get their COVID-19 vaccines. I know it will be a long while before I'm in the front of the line um, to get mine, but it definitely is a more hopeful moment today than it was even just a couple of weeks ago. Today, we have book 19 of the Odyssey. At the end of book 18, all of the suitors went home to bed, and that is where book 19 picks up. Odysseus tells Telemachus that it's time for them to start putting their plan into action. Odysseus tells Telemachus to gather up all of the weapons, um, and it's not clear if these are just Odysseus's weapons or if the suitors just, you know, left stuff at the hall when they went home. I mean, they were drunk, so I suppose that's possible. Anyway, Homer really needs a show Bible uh, because they're just some things that don't make sense. There's no script supervisor um, on these ancient epics. Anyway... Telemachus gathers up the weapons and locks them in a storeroom. To make sure the plan goes smoothly, he tells Eurycleia, Odysseus's old nurse who is still alive and kicking, to make sure the maids have all gone to bed. And he explains that he's moving the weapons to keep them clean. Um, Eurycleia is a little skeptical of this because it's dark out, and by dismissing the maids, there's no one left to hold the torches. Uh, Telemachus says that the old beggar who's come to visit will help him. But really... It's Athena um, who winds up holding the torch, or, you know, really, it's a magical golden lamp that gives the purest light because she's a god and all. Telemachus is still getting used to Athena hanging around, so he's surprised by this sudden light. And Odysseus, on the other hand, is totally cool with it. It's like old hat now. Once they've taken care of the weapons, Odysseus sends Telemachus off to bed. He, on the other hand, stays up because he wants to talk to Penelope. And, of course, she comes downstairs shortly thereafter. And this is another point at which she's compared to both Artemis and Aphrodite, um, which is something that we've seen before. Anyway, she's not alone. Some maids drag her chair over to the fire, and some others start clearing the tables and cleaning up the mess that the suitors left behind. And Melantho, the maid who really is a stand-in for all of the maids who've misbehaved, at least as far as Odysseus is concerned, berates Odysseus for still hanging around. She threatens to set him on fire if he doesn't leave. So, yeah, she is just as charming as the suitors that she hangs around with during the day. Odysseus doesn't take it. He retorts that she shouldn't punch down and reminds her that beggars and guests are protected by Zeus. Penelope hears this exchange and scolds Melantho for speaking this way to their guest. She then asks Eurynome, the housekeeper, to bring a bench over and cover it with soft sheepskin so that the stranger can sit and talk with her. And Penelope asks for his story. Odysseus begins by addressing Penelope as one typically would address a king. Penelope tells him that she's flattered, but she's not as powerful as he would think. 
She then goes on to explain what's been happening with the suitors, and she tells the story of how she wove and unraveled the shroud, keeping up the ruse for three years. And if you ever hear someone talk about Penelope's web, not Charlotte's web, that's something different, Penelope's web, this is what they're talking about. It's this this ruse of how she wove um, and unraveled the, the funeral shroud for, for those three years. Um, anyway, she concludes that she had no choice but to finish it. Um, and so now she no longer has any strength left to evade a second marriage. Um, and after all of that, long speech, then she finally, again, presses the stranger to tell his story. And then Odysseus tells the same story that we've now heard multiple times because orality. Um, and he tells the story really well. And it brings Penelope to tears. But she isn't called wise Penelope for nothing. So even though it's a good story, she still doesn't completely trust the stranger. So she asks about three things. His clothes, his looks, and his companions. So if he really saw, if this stranger really saw her husband, he should know about these three things. And Odysseus, of course, being the actual man, answers these questions with no problem. And Penelope is convinced that he's at least seen her husband because she gave him the clothes and she recognizes the descriptions of, of course, both Odysseus and his companions. And she weeps some more knowing that she will never see her husband again. Um, And the stranger reassures her that he's heard that Odysseus is near. And he tells the story of being shipwrecked and rescued by the, Fae- by the Phaeacians. And he claims to have heard this tale from King Phaedon of uh, Thesprotia and that Odysseus is on his way home right now. Penelope listens kindly and thanks him for this tale, even though she doesn't believe a word of it. She's not even sure that Odysseus was ever real at this point. Penelope calls for the maids to prepare a bath and a bed for their guest. Odysseus doesn't like the thought of these young women assisting him, so Penelope calls old Eurycleia to help instead. Eurycleia murmurs at how alike this man is to Odysseus, whom she raised from boyhood. He tries to convince her that it's just a coincidence, but when she starts to wash his feet, she sees this scar on his leg. And Odysseus had forgotten about the scar until it was too late, and and Eurycleia has seen it. So he's just getting ready to, to hide his leg and just doesn't doesn't think of it fast enough. And the next about 100 lines cover the span of mere seconds in the interaction between master and slave. Eurycleus sees the scar. And then she thinks back to the time that Odysseus was a boy and he was visiting his grandpa on Parnassus and he and his uncles went hunting and he was gored by a boar. And she remembers then, that makes her think then, of how Grandpa Attilicus had been the one to name the boy Odysseus, and and he had gifts for the boy to, for when he was old enough to come and claim them. So he, he didn't send the gift back to Ithaca with, uh, with the baby. He, w- he waited until the baby was, was old enough, had grown enough to come to Parnassus to fetch the gifts. Um... And, and that was why he was there. That was why he was there in Parnassus. And they'd feasted. And, and then they went hunting. And there is then a very long section describing exactly how the injury happened. And all of that happens between the moment Odysseus, excuse me, the moment Eurycleia sees the scar and the moment 
she looks up and touches touches his chin and says, You are Odysseus. And at the same time that she does that, Odysseus is reaching down and he grabs her by the throat and he says, You need to keep this a secret or else I will kill you when I kill the rest of the maids. Eurycleia reassures him that she will support him however he needs. And she finishes washing his feet and then goes about her business. Odysseus drags his bench over to the fire and is careful to keep his scar hidden since now he remembers that it's there and, you know, who's somebody else who might have seen his leg before? Oh, I don't know, his wife? Penelope breaks the silence. She speaks of how she can't decide whether she should stay here with her son or remarry. And then she asks him to interpret a dream in which this eagle flew down and killed her 20 fat geese before flying away. And then flying back to say, oh, by the way, I'm Odysseus and those geese were your suitors, so don't cry over them. Odysseus points out that the dream kind of interpreted itself. But Penelope responds that dreams come from two places. One place brings dreams that are truthful, and the other brings dreams that are lies. And how is one to know where the dream comes from? No, she's decided that she'll hold a contest to pick the suitor she'll marry. You see, her husband used to line up 12 axe heads, and, and you know, they had a hole in them, so... Remember that, because otherwise this doesn't make any sense. Um, so he'd, he'd line up 12 axe heads, kind of like on the keel of a boat. And then, and then he'd go a long way back. And then he'd shoot an arrow through all 12 axes. He was a regular ancient Greek Robin Hood. This was his thing. This, is like, this was his favorite game to play. Now, if any of the suitors can accomplish this feat, then she knows he is worthy to be her husband. And she will marry him. Odysseus tells her this is a great plan and she should have the contest tomorrow. <laughs> Penelope smiles and tells him that she could sit up all night talking with him. But mere mortals must sleep, so she's going up to bed. She invites him to have his pick of the floor to sleep on or he can, you know, find a bed. Um, and then she goes up to her room and cries herself to sleep with a little help from Athena, of course. And that is where book 19 ends. What I love about this book is how it shows how our minds work. Um, And I suppose all of the Odyssey really does a bit of that. Um, But we get such a great example of it here in book 19. Memory and thought don't travel in a straight line. It's not a chronological thing. Um, Something happens and then we remember something else and we flash back to that memory. But it all happens in in a moment. And that's exactly what we see in the hundred lines or so during which Eurycleia is washing Odysseus's feet. She sees the scar and she remembers how he got the scar, which makes her remember when he was a newborn baby, um, when she was his nurse. She, she has taken care of Odysseus his entire life. God knows how old she is at this point. Um... She was of childbearing age by the time he was born, because otherwise she couldn't be a nursemaid, right? Um, so, you know, it 
But that all happens just in that instant that she gets that flash and that vision at the same time that she's reaching up and saying, you are Odysseus. And at the same time, he's having the same thing of, oh my God, there's this scar and my old nurse will recognize it. Because he too is having a similar memory of how he got that scar and how she raised him and how she will be able to recognize him from this. Um, and and I, I love, that's what I really love about the Odyssey, not, not necessarily the story, but how, how human it is in, um, in the way it is a representation of how, how our minds work. And while I'm on, on that section, um, the, um, the, this revelation section, um, it's interesting to note the physical position of the bodies of um, Eurycleia and Odysseus. Traditionally, a suppliant grabs, you know, whoever they're trying to get to help them. They grab them, you kneel down, you grab them by the knee, and you reach up and grab them by the neck. And this is not on video. I am totally motioning how this is done, which, honestly, my professors, of course, would show us, you know, like, yeah, you do this and you do this. And and it's this twofold thing of showing that I'm, I'm so humble that I can touch, I will touch your feet, but I'll also strangle you if you don't, um, if you don't help me out. Now, Eurycleia, of course, is not reaching to grab his neck. She's reaching to just touch his face in recognition the way the way you do a child when when you see them, right? Um, and someday we'll be able to touch people again. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to that. But while she is doing this suppliant pose, it's almost like Odysseus is doing the same thing when he's reaching down and grabbing her by the throat. Um, to threaten her that that we almost have kind of this dual dual suppliant pose going on between between the two of them um anyway it's it, interesting visual um but anyway I cannot of course leave this episode without talking at least a little bit about Penelope um who of course I love I hope you love her as much as I do anyway this is not the first time We've heard about Penelope's web, um, but this time we get to hear about it from her. Um, And while she says that she's been forced to finish the shroud, there is absolutely no indication of how long ago that happened. So we don't know how long she has been fending the suitors off between the time she finished the shroud and the time that Odysseus um, returns to Ithaca. Um, which does add another layer to what's been going on. I mean, is it is it that it was finished yesterday and, the, you know, she said, okay, fine, I'll pick a new new husband once, um, once the shroud is finished? Is it that, you know, the other thing that she'd said, well, my son needs to be grown. He has to be able to grow a beard first. Um, so did that happen and then she wove the shroud or was she working on the shroud and then she said okay now that it's done well okay now now I've put another condition on that uh, my son needs to be old enough to take care of himself um he needs to be be a man and have the physical signifier of manhood which is the ability to grow a beard um we we don't we don't know so it I think there's a certain amount of exhaustion in Penelope in this section where she has been fighting off the suitors for so long and trying to come up with 
new ruses to to hold them back, and she's just tired. Um, can't blame her. If she's tired, she's grieving, um, which is another thing that we see in this book, just how Penelope personifies what it is to grieve and the haziness that comes with it. Odysseus has been gone for so long that she's not even sure he was ever there in the first place. It has been 20 years. So did that, that life that she had 20 years ago, was that, was that even real? Um, maybe that was all just a dream and, and which does make you wonder, okay, so then where where did, did Telemachus come from? What, you know, what is real? Um, but that's, that's liminality for you, right? That haziness, that in between, that not being sure what's real and what's not, because none, none of it is either. It's all somewhere in between, and that that's what grief and grieving feels like a lot. Um, anyway, I'm going to leave you with one final thought. Does Penelope know who she's talking to? Good question, isn't it? Does she know who she, she does she know that this is Odysseus? Does she have an inkling that this is Odysseus? There are times that I think she might, and there are times that it really seems that she doesn't. But what do you think? Pop over to the blog and tell me and tell me what you think. The blog is at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. And in the show notes, you can also find a link to my Patreon, where patrons get early access to ad-free episodes in addition to some bonus content. You can find me there as triumvirclio. On Friday, we will have a short episode on the Homeric Hymn to Zeus. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.